All right, so this morning we're going to be looking at the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision. A lot of times it's just known as the Abrahamic covenant. Um, but Stephen in Acts 7 refers to it as the covenant of circumcision. It's never uh, specifically called the Abrahamic covenant, but a lot of times it's referred to uh, by God as the covenant that I made with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So if you see it in books or things like that, it's usually called the Abrahamic covenant. Um, but uh, we're going to try to stick with biblical terminology as much as possible, so we're calling it the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision. Um, let's pray real quick, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for uh, this time that we can spend together in your word. Uh, we just ask that you would uh, bless us with your spirit here today, that you would pour him out upon us to uh, help us to understand accurately your word and what you have revealed and um, to know what it is you want us to know uh, from this, this part of scripture, Lord. Um, bless our time here together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so quick recap. We first Week one was Adam in the Garden of Eden. Uh, he was working to guard and keep that holy temple garden uh, and, and trying to earn his way into eternal rest. He failed and uh, turned his kingdom over to Satan by bowing to Satan and obeying him rather than God and plunged the world into um, the misery and curse that we experience now. And then week two, we looked at uh, the new covenant and how... Christ came to reverse that curse. Right? He was the promised seed of the woman who came and was the second Adam who failed, uh, who succeeded where Adam failed and uh, won for us eternal life in a new creation, the kingdom of Christ. And the last week we looked at the Noahic covenant. And so the Noahic covenant came along in the midst of a very fallen and violent and cursed world. And um, the Noahic covenant, God wiped out the world with a flood, saved Noah, and then promised to stabilize uh, the world and not wipe everyone out because of sin. And so the Noahic covenant serves as a, as a platform, a foundation upon which the rest of the history of redemption unfolds. And so today we find ourselves in uh, Genesis 12 through 22, basically. And again, like all of the covenants, um, there, we could spend weeks on this, you know. Um, so I'm not going to be able to touch on everything uh, that we see in Genesis 12 to 22 or everything that we hear about the Abrahamic covenant later in Scripture either. Uh, if I miss anything and you've got good questions at the end, feel free to ask them. Uh, but I'm selective here in what we're addressing to try to um, try to cut it down to the bare bones. So you can really see what's what's going on here in the dynamic, uh, what the covenant's about, um, and then other things can kind of fall in place as you as you add them to it. So we will start with the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. There is one Abrahamic covenant of circumcision revealed cumulatively from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22. It consists fundamentally of two promises. Right? There's some people who look at it, um, when, you, when you read through there and you read Genesis 15 and you compare it with Genesis 17, they seem like maybe they're, they're a lot different in nature. And so some people will say, well, there's, there's actually two different Abrahamic covenants. One is conditional and the other is unconditional. 
But I think Scripture presents us with one Abrahamic covenant that God kind of partially reveals to Abraham in the beginning when he calls him out of Ur in Genesis 12. And then throughout his life, he's revealing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. So these are all stages and unfolding and revelation of a single covenant. And we can break it down into essentially two promises. So the first promise was that Abraham would have numerous offspring that would become a great nation and possess the land of Canaan. Uh, Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to a place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And that's repeated, uh, Genesis 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you, are, where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that it, if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And then again in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And then in Genesis 15, sorry, 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then finally, in Genesis 22, and the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time and said, from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Um, so what we, what we see there repeated again and again is that Abraham will 
have numerous offspring, right? He doesn't have a single child right now. Sarah is barren. God promises that he will be fruitful and multiply. Does that sound familiar? He will have numerous offspring. And that offspring is going to be given a land, the land of Canaan that's currently um, occupied by um, other nations, other tribes. And uh, you can go back actually just after, after the flood with Noah and look at uh, the account there with Ham and um, the, the curse that Noah places on Ham. Uh, these tribes here, a lot of these tribes that we're talking about that are going to be removed from the land of Canaan come from Ham and is, is part of that curse. And then um, Abram comes from um, Shem, I believe. So there's a lot of, a lot of history there. Um, so that's essentially the first promise. It's about Abraham and his, his natural offspring, right? And becoming a great nation in the land of, land of Canaan, basically Israel. And then we have a second promise. The second promise was that Abraham would be the father of the promised seed of the woman that we read about um, a couple weeks ago in Genesis 3.15. He would be the father of the promised seed of the woman who would bless all nations by establishing the new covenant. Right, so God promised that one of the seed of the woman, woman would uh, reverse this curse. And we don't hear anything else specifically about that for a while. Uh, for quite a long time. And then God calls Abraham and says, he's going to come from you. Genesis 12, 3, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that phrase right there, as it's unpacked through the rest of Scripture, we find out is a reference to that Genesis 3:15 promise. So in you refers to Christ. In you, in your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 18. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? Uh, Genesis 22 17b, so we just read the first part of 17, 17b says, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now that is an interesting verse right there. We just read the, the first half of it on the last page, talking about the first promise. So the beginning of it says, um, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Right? So that's obviously referring to a lot of offspring in the plural. And then in, it's interesting in the grammar there of the Hebrew, the second half of 17, it then switches. And it says, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 22.17, second half of 17, sorry. Now some translations might have, um, and your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. 
right? Because um, like the word offspring in English, it can mean singular or it can mean plural. Uh, similar in, in the Hebrew there, but the um, different translations like the ESV will note that uh, it translates it singularly. So this is echoing back to Genesis 3.15, that promise, a single seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head. Um, and so the, it, it's presenting here in 17, it's very interesting, a difference between this promise to the multiple seed and then a promise to Abraham concerning one single offspring. All right, so the plural and the singular, it introduces that uh, dichotomy, that dynamic there. And Paul actually picks up on that in Galatians. Starting in verse 8, he says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And then skipping down a little bit to verse 16, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So this is actually a, a very um, difficult verse. It's very confusing. A lot of commentators have a hard time figuring out what Paul's saying here, because he seems to be making an argument from the grammar. He's saying it doesn't say uh, offsprings plural, it says offspring singular. Right, but the word itself is both. So he's appealing to this word, it's like deer. He's saying, well, it, it says deer, not deers. Well, it, you don't say deers. Right, so what, well, how is, what is Paul doing here? How, is he, how can he make this appeal to the grammar of the language? And um, he is actually appealing to what we just looked at in 17 where it refers, first of all, to a plural offspring. And so many of those promises are made, and to your offspring, plural. But then he's commenting on this specific promise. In you shall all the nations be blessed. And he says that is in reference to single offspring. So that's a lot to unpack. We won't get into that completely here today, but that's the dichotomy we're dealing with. And Paul brings that up in Galatians because once Christ has come, what starts happening is this offspring plural starts saying, well, if you're in Christ, you've got to be with us. You've got to be part of the offspring plural. You've got to be circumcised. And Paul says, no, 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 you're confusing it. These are two different promises that God made to Abraham. And you're, you're conflating them. You're mixing them together. And these were two different things. He says one was made to offsprings plural, and the other was made concerning offspring singular. So that's a, a difference we'll keep in mind as we go through, through the rest of Scripture and, and the rest of today. I'll pause there real quick. That was kind of a mouthful to get through. Any, any questions at this point? Does that make sense a little bit? All right. Next point is God's sovereign election in this whole uh, ordeal with Abram. I mean, first of all, he called Abram himself and then God sovereignly chose, uh, or another word for that is elected, that both promises would be fulfilled through the line of Isaac, not Ishmael. 
and through the line of Jacob, not Esau. So Paul talks about this in Romans 9. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So that difference there between flesh and promise, that's referring to the difference between Ishmael and Isaac. Right? Ishmael was born of the flesh. It was by Abram's effort to fulfill God's promise. Right? He came up with his own plan. Sarah as well, they schemed together and they said, we're going to figure this out. And it was through their own effort. And it turned out that's not what God had in mind. And so Isaac was born through promise, miraculously, not through Abram and Sarah's effort, but by God's sovereign miraculous work. And so there's this dichotomy between the child of the flesh and the child of promise. And God says, this covenant is going to continue. The offspring that's going to inherit the land and the line through which the Christ will be born is going to happen through Isaac, not Ishmael. And then the same thing happens with Isaac's uh, sons. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So this is an important lesson that God teaches us in this covenant with Abraham, that he is in charge. He is in control. He decides who receives, um, who, who he will bestow blessings upon. And so he chooses Isaac, not Ishmael, and he chooses Jacob, not Esau. And this uh, re repeats, uh, yeah, one second, this repeats a, a theme um, in throughout Genesis of, of the reversal of the common order, the, usually the firstborn, right, is the one who receives the inheritance. And this is reversed several times throughout Genesis, where no, it's actually the, the younger that will receive the inheritance. Um, yeah, Clinton? So in the, in the section above, uh, in the passage of Galatians, we talk about offspring and the difference between singular and plural. Mm -hmm. And that it was, it was singular in that, and that gives insight to the meaning of that passage, right? But, mm -hmm. So in Romans 9, verse 8, um, it uses the same word. So that, and, and here we're talking about the difference of the nation, that the plural offspring, you know? So the, the word itself is, it, it isn't decisive. The word itself can be singular or plural. In English. In, in English, in... Or in Greek, too. Yeah, in Greek and Hebrew, yeah. Yeah, uh, sperma, I think, is the Greek word, and I can't remember what the Hebrew is. Um, but yeah, through, throughout all of those. So it has more to do with the context of, of the sentence and the, and the other words around it. And so 
Hebrew scholars have, have recognized, um, like in the ESV, they recognize actually Paul is, is picking up on something in 2217 here. There actually is some grammar here that does make it singular. So it's not just the word itself, it's the whole sentence basically. Does that make sense? It is hard, yeah. Um, there's a few different um, ways that uh, interpretations that people have offered. Um, at the very least, it means um, Jacob I loved and bestowed my blessing upon, and Esau I did not. Right. Um, the word hated has some you know it's very strong in English. Um, it may or may not have the same connotation there in Greek. At the very least, it means I chose Jacob to bless, and I did not bless Esau, in that, in that sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah, perhaps because the way God disliked the way Esau came about. about the, he disliked something that Esau did? Well, that um, uh, what Abraham and Sarah had done by using the maidservant. Well, that was, that was Ishmael. Oh, that was Ishmael. That was Ishmael. So this was then the next generation down. And so, uh, so Isaac. Esau, so Esau came from Sarah too? Uh, from Isaac. So, oh, so Isaac had, oh, Isaac and, and Rebecca. Oh, it's all right. And she had twins, right? Okay. And, and, but it's a good point. Maybe it was because God didn't like something about Esau. But the text actually clarifies here, it wasn't because of anything that they had done. It was simply God choosing one and not the other. Yeah. Uh, was it maybe because God was looking at their heart what is going to be in the future? Was God looking at their heart at what they would be in the future? That's a good question. I think Romans, how they're going to act in the future. So he, because he's omniscient, he can look into the future and see one's going to obey, one's not. Possibly. One question, if you look at the lives of the two of them as it played out, was, was Jacob faithful and obedient and righteous? And, or was he, as his name suggests, a schemer who schemed and deceived his whole life? Maybe Esau was worse. Maybe Esau's worse. That's a good question. Let's see what the text here says uh, in Romans. It says, um, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So we're specifically told it was not based on their life, what they would do, what they had done. It was based solely on God's, um, God's prerogative here. Good questions, good comments. So the question, next question here is, was the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision conditional or unconditional? What do you guys think? How many hands for uh, unconditional? Okay, how many for conditional? Okay, all right, all right. Why would you say it was unconditional? 
God said he would do it. Okay. He didn't ask of Abraham to do something. Okay. His part. Okay. I was just, I, I was scanning real quick trying to look for if. Where's, where's the if? Okay. Okay. Excellent. And how about you guys who said it was conditional? Why would you say it's conditional? Conditional on Christ? Okay. So the so like the second the second promise that we looked at, conditional in that sense. How about the first promise? Concerning the numerous offspring and land in the, in Canaan? Okay. Okay. So this is an interesting, interesting um, perspective. So, so you would say it was not, um, it was conditional, because um, your reading of, of the promise, um, they've they've never they've never possessed the land according to the borders listed in in Genesis 15, the river Euphrates to the Nile. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's that's a, that's an interesting point. He argues it's conditional because they never fully inherited the land because they failed to to obey essentially. So these are some great points. So keep them all in mind as we uh, go forward here. The Genesis 15 vision. Right. So this is when God puts uh, Abram to sleep. Right, and He gives him a vision of. Um, well, Abram um, sets the animals out, and then God puts them to sleep, and God gives them a vision of um, a smoking pot and burning furnace passing through the parts. And this is, as we looked at uh, last week, a self-maledictory oath. Anybody remember what that means? A self-maledictory oath? Fancy word? It means that somebody is bringing a potential curse upon themselves. It's self-maledictory. It's saying, if I don't do this, may I be punished as we punish these animals, as we split these animals in two. And so this is essentially what, what God is promising here in Genesis 15. Abram cuts the animals in half. This is a typical ceremony, splits them, and then normally both parties walk through. And they say, we are committing ourselves together to do what's promised, and if either one of us fails, uh, we will be like, like these animals here. But what's interesting here is that Abram does not pass through. Abram's asleep, and God is the one who passes through uh, in a vision. So the Genesis 15 vision of the self-maledictory oath ceremony represented God's part in the covenant. His oath that he will miraculously do what he promised. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So this is an important point. Abram's looking for reassurance. Right? God has promised these, promised these things to him, and he's saying, I, I, don't have, I don't have any children. How? I need some assurance here. How can you encourage me? And Abram said, uh, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. 
your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So that sounds pretty unconditional. All right, normally both parties would pass through, only God passes through, Abram's asleep, and he, God says, this is what I'm going to do. All these things are going to happen, and I'm going to fulfill my promise. So it sounds pretty unconditional. But remember what I said, the Abrahamic covenant is progressively revealed from 12 all the way to 22, over many, many years of Abram's life, Abraham's life. So as a result of this Genesis 15 promise, Isaac was miraculously born as a result. He is referred to as a child of promise rather than a child of the flesh. I'm going to skip over those verses for the sake of time, but you can go back and read those, um, uh, read those later. He was, he was born miraculously, right? This wasn't Abram's doing. This was God sovereignly acting to fulfill this Genesis 15 promise like he um, portrayed in the vision, right? He is coming of his own power to miraculously fulfill this. Then if we get to Genesis 17, we see that Genesis 17 represented Abraham and his descendants' part in the conditional covenant. Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not, um, who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money 
shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If the covenant's unconditional, how can it be broken? This gets a little confusing. But it does clearly present there's a way in which this covenant can be broken. When it says that he shall be cut off, if you look at that later in the rest of the Torah, in, in Mosaic law, being cut off refers to being put to death. Sometimes that's by the hand of God himself, and sometimes it's uh, stoning. Uh, right? When they're commanded to stone uh, people for, for breaking God's law, it's referred to as uh, being cut off. So this is, this is very drastic language that we're getting in, in Genesis 17. This is not simply Abram's asleep and God's doing everything. This is now you must do your part or you're going to be put to death. And we'll look down here a little bit later um, what circumcision meant. Now scripture says that because Abraham was obedient... God confirmed that the promises made to him would be fulfilled. Genesis 22, in verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. This is referring to Abraham taking Isaac up on Mount um, Moriah. And... um, being willing to to um, sacrifice him. And God says, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And then in Genesis 26, this is uh, repeated later to Isaac. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So this brings us to circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. It was an oath of allegiance to Yahweh, and thus an obligation to obey the law as it had been revealed to Abraham and as it was further revealed to Moses, as the condition of being the promised people living in the promised land. Every Israelite was born into this oath of allegiance upon pain of death, right? It's something they were obligated to. They had to be circumcised. And if they weren't, as we just read, they would be put to death. Circumcision is tied to the law. That's what we see throughout the New Testament as well. It's associated with the law. 
Genesis 17, 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And then uh, as an application of that threat is an interesting story in, in Exodus. Um, after Moses is married and has children, Exodus 4, it says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So Moses had not circumcised his children. And uh, the Lord was going to bring this curse upon them because of that because they had broken the covenant. In Exodus 19, after God brings the Israelites out of Egypt on Mount Sinai, he makes the, the old covenant with them. We'll, we'll look at that uh, next week, I think. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. It's interesting, um, circumcision was not necessarily this new thing that God invented in Genesis 17. It was something that existed in, in certain cultures for certain reasons. Um, in Egypt, the priests were circumcised as a sign that they were priests dedicated to uh, the gods of Egypt. It was a, a way of setting them apart and designating them for that priestly service. What's unique is that an entire nation would be circumcised. And that's what Exodus 19 is getting at. This entire kingdom, this entire nation is a kingdom of priests. They are all priests dedicated to the service of Yahweh. That's what's unique about, about this um, nation that God has, has called and created. And that's what circumcision represents. It's, it's an oath. Right? It's something that they are obligating themselves to, although they didn't have a choice. It's an oath of allegiance to Yahweh. Deuteronomy 7.11 says, You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. That's a pretty important verse there in understanding and trying to answer our question was, is the covenant of circumcision, is it conditional, is it unconditional? This verse says pretty clearly, you must keep these commandments that I have given you in order that I will keep my covenant in the steadfast love that I swore to your fathers. Galatians 5, 3 says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Right? That's, what, that's what circumcision represented. It was this oath of allegiance to keep the whole law. Romans 2.25 says, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And it's profitable if you actually do what it represents, if you obey the law. If not, you might as well not be circumcised at all. And Acts 15.10, this is the Jerusalem Council when they're trying to decide what should we do with uh, the Gentiles and circumcision. 
Peter says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Right, so this is the idea of it's a burden, it's a yoke. Now, circumcision was also a seal or a guarantee. That's what seal refers to. It's a guarantee. Kind of like a, a diploma, right? If you, if you get a diploma, it's official. It's from where you graduated, and it's proof. It's guarantee that you, in fact, graduated. Um, there's also the idea of a wax seal. You may have heard of that uh, in this time. I think when we went through Esther, there was the use of a wax seal that the king would have, right? And if he would write a decree or write a letter, um, they would seal it uh, with wax and he would imprint it with his ring, which had his seal. And so it was guaranteeing that he was the one that wrote it. It's, it's somewhat like a signature, right? So circumcision was also a seal or a guarantee to Abraham of what God promised. Romans 4.1 says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Um, and then just skipping down for the sake of time, uh, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which was to be in the uncircumcision. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So there's a ton going on in this passage. <laughs> We're not going to have time to unpack all of it, but a couple of points here. One is that circumcision was, was given, first of that, as that oath of allegiance, but it was also given to Abraham as a guarantee, um, as a seal of what God promised. Uh, another way of reassuring Abraham, uh, God will fulfill what he promised. And there's some different ways to translate verse 11 there. Um, the ESV has what I crossed out there, that he, uh, the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Um, and another option there is um, he received the sign of circum circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which was to be in the uncircumcision. That's referring to the Gentiles. That's kind of what this passage is about, the faith that would be in the Gentiles. And the idea is that circum circumcision was a seal of this promise that in Abram and Abraham, all nations of the earth, the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, would be blessed. So this was a seal of the righteousness of Christ that would be for the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, in due time. And the point of Paul here in Romans 4 is he says Paul was justified by believing God before he was ever circumcised. 
And his point is that that was justification by faith alone, not through works of the law, because circumcision is associated with the law. And so Paul reiterates that he was, he was justified before that. The promise of Christ is received through faith alone, not through works of the law. I will pause there for a moment. Um, any, any questions, comments at this point? All right. All right. I just think that it's super, super awkward, right? I mean, just the circumcision. It's like there's a part of me that feels like, why did God choose that? Right? It just seems like it could have been like a tattoo on the shoulder <laughs> or something. Uh huh. Um, it just seems super confusing because it's like, number one, I mean, not to be like awkward, but like, how did you know? It's not like people were not like walking around, right? And so, I mean, it's a sign of the covenant. You would think that it would have been more public, but this is like intensely private, right? Mm -hmm. so, and why only men and not women? Yeah, men and mm -hmm. women. I mean, there's a whole question about just like the whole, like, why this part that just seems super awkward. Yeah, so. Well, see, that's the other thing is like, if a lot of times it was children, which there's a benefit for children, but there's also men, mm -hmm. stories, people who are coming into it, so it's certainly a lot less convenient. <laughs> right? yep. But all, even that's like super awkward and like, why God? I mean, it just seems very unusual. Yeah. But so just for the sake of recording, so the question was, why, why circumcision? Why is that the sign? It seems very inconvenient at the very least. It's awkward, it's uncomfortable, it hurts. Uh, it was also private, uh, you couldn't see it. Um, so why, why circumcision was the question. Go ahead. I have no idea. <laughs> I know circumcision, I, I think it, um, in a study I once took, it is a cutting, which is all part of the covenant uh, Yeah, so the, the comment here was it's uh, circum circumcision is a cutting and that alludes to the idea of cutting a covenant. So the, there's some symbolism there. And I think that's, that's absolutely right. I think that's definitely part of it. Go ahead. I think it also has to do something with the beginning of life. Mm -hmm. right? Like at the very beginning of a conception, you know, like before literally a person is conceived in their culture, like sea is passing through covenant on the way to life. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so the comment there for the sake of the recording was just that this is, this is the, the organ of, of, um, uh, of uh, procreation, right, of offspring. Um, they, they pass through this organ on the way to life, and so there's symbolism there of, of the covenant uh, passing through them, and I think there's a lot to that, right? What is this covenant about? What's the, what's the big point of this covenant? Offspring. Right? That's the predominant focus here, both offspring plural and singular, but it's, it's a focus on the offspring. And, and, um, and so I think that, that has a lot to do with it. Um, so there's the, the aspect of cutting, cutting off. Um, later uh, passages in, in the Old Testament talk about um, uh, cutting off the, the foreskin of your heart, right? Uh, callousness and, 
and there, there's some symbolism there. Um, there's this idea that, w that we read here of, of judgment, of threat, this cutting off. And that's uh, if, you, if you aren't circumcised, you'll be cut off, put to death. Right? So there's this language of judgment and threat uh, associated with circumcision. Um, so there's, there's a lot of layers to it. Um, it was private. There are instances there, that we read later where, um, I can't remember the exact ones right now, but you know, where they, where they do let people know they're circumcised. <laughs> Uh, they do make it public in, in certain contexts, um, and um, so there. I don't. I don't have a complete answer, but I think it's a lot of layers to it. Like I said, it, there, it was a ritual at the time with with different nations, um, uh, dedicating one to service of of, of a god of, in a priestly manner. Um, so, but I think that's. I don't know. All, all those different layers combined together to give maybe some glimpse. I don't know if that helps at all, but it's it's a good question to ask. I, I'll, I'll ask God next time I see him. And, uh, were you going to say something? So, I just keep thinking it was setting them apart. Yes. That, yes. That, that a person that they would know that that Israelite was a Jew. Absolutely. Like, even though maybe other people were doing it too. But yeah, a whole nation hadn't done it. It was it, that was unique. So comment here was it was also involved with setting them apart. It was a sign to set them apart from other nations. Absolutely, that was a huge, huge part of it for sure. Yeah. What's that? I was just gonna, I, I think the, the, the private nature of it comes from the fact that um, you know God speaking specifically that he looks at the heart mm -hmm. and so the idea is that yes this is something that you're not going to go around showing everyone it, it should be something that is um, innate in the sense of like it, it comes from the outside with uh, to or, or comes from the inside out you know and so this is a thing that you know that you have between you and God and it should help create that relationship between you and God because what God wanted was the heart obedience the same way that Abraham before he circumcised believes in God and it's counted to him as righteousness God, that's what God was after the whole time was that we would willingly you know obey from the heart Mm -hmm. And so, like I think, I think that the private nature of it comes from that aspect. It's, it's not something that everybody can see. You know, it, it's it's about hopefully transforming the inside out in some ways. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, I mean, I think that's part of it. Yeah, that could be that could be part of it. Um, there, I think there is definitely a sense in which they know who's circumcised and who's not. So it, it's not as awkward as it may be. It's not an entirely private matter. Um, but yeah, those are those are good thoughts for sure. Um, we're not going to have time to get through all of this today, I don't think. We'll do our we'll, we'll see how far we get. We may pick up part of this next week. Um, any other questions on on the circumcision at the moment? Great, they're good questions. I don't have all the answers. Um, so the next section is about salvation. So right, we just talked about Abraham was justified by, uh, declared righteous, uh, justified by faith alone. So it raises an inter interesting question maybe. How, how is that possible, right? Christ had not yet come. Were they saved in a different way, right? Were they saved maybe, some people say, maybe through law keeping in the Old Testament before Christ came. Maybe they were saved in a different way. Right, but that's not what, what we just read here. Paul was saved apart from obedience to the law. 
During this time, men were saved by believing in the promised seed of the woman, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right, so with Noah, uh, we looked at this, right? His father named him Noah because he thought Noah, he, he wanted Noah to be the one that would bring them rest. There was this general knowledge um, that people knew that there was going to be a, a promised one to be born to reverse the curse. So they were looking for um, this Savior. And those who had faith that God would, um, would fulfill his promise, right? That, that's how they were saved. The gospel was not revealed to them as clearly as it is to us today. But it was revealed to them in a, in a, much, in a more obscure, less detailed way. Um, and we also saw last week, I don't know if we talked about it too much, but there were prophets in that day as well that, that did further reveal things. Enoch was a prophet. Um, uh, in this section, if you read it, uh, you have uh, Melchizedek, right? A priest, right? That God was revealing things through. There, there was more information than, than just the limited amount that's recorded here for us. We, we get what we need to know here. But God was also revealing a lot more to them at that time. So their hope was placed in this promised, uh, this promised offspring, this promised seed. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Right? So the distinguishing factor for Abraham now is that this promise that one of the seed of, of um, Eve will be born, now it's going to be one of the seed of Abraham. Right? And so that's, that's how Abraham was justified here. He believed that promise. He believed that in him, he didn't have any offspring. But he believed that in his offspring, the nations will be blessed. He believed that promise. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Right? He, was, he was justified by the blood of Christ by looking forward to the blood of Christ. Um, we read uh, Romans 4 earlier. Uh, what shall we say that was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then in Galatians 3, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we can see from these passages here that the two promises, the two different promises that God made that we looked at at the beginning, um, they represent law and gospel. Circumcision there represents law and law-keeping, as we saw, and then we'll unpack that a bit later as well. And then all these passages we just read about Abraham uh, being justified by faith refer to that, that promise, right? In Galatians, we just read, in you all the nations will be blessed. And the emphasis there is that it's not, uh, not based on works of law, 
but is based on hearing with faith. So as we'll start to see as we unpack these and look at the Old Covenant and everything else, this, there's this dichotomous nature in the Abrahamic Covenant. We've kind of got these, these two different things. Is it conditional? Is it unconditional? Is it law? Is it gospel? There's, there's these two things trying to be held in balance and, and presenting these two different paths. And so circumcision and his numerous offspring coming into the land of Canaan represents law and law-keeping. And the emphasis here is that even though that was promised to Abraham, he believed, apart from law-keeping, he believed in this promised one who would bless the nations, and that's how he was saved. As we saw in week two, justification by faith alone stands for justification by Christ's righteousness alone. And it is a gift, a benefit, of new covenant union with Christ. Thus, Abraham was saved by the new covenant. He received its benefits in advance, kind of like a payday loan. Because Christ's future work was a legal certainty that he could take to the bank. All right, so has anybody ever taken out a payday loan before? Do you get the, the, the idea? It's that you have a contract with your employer and they say, we're going to pay you on the 14th of every month. So you've got a signed contract. It's a legal certainty. And it's the seventh of the month and you need to pay some bills. You don't have that money yet. You can take that to a loan, a payday loan office and say, look, I'm going to get paid on the 14th. Can I get an advance on that? And they say, oh, sure, we'll give you the money in advance. And so you get it before your actual payday. You can take that to the bank and get money. The same is, is how salvation worked in the Old Testament. Right? We saw in, in week two that Christ, when he was born, he said that he had come to do the work of the Father. Right? The Father had given him a work to do. And we see other passages where um, he is the lamb slain from the, foundations, from, from the foundation of the world. And, um, and in Ephesians, we're chosen in him uh, before the foundations of the world. So this was something that, that Christ knew he was going to come to do and that he agreed to come and do. And so because of that agreement, because he swore that he would do it, it was a legal certainty, right? That the Old Testament saints could take to the bank. They could benefit from that before it actually happened because it was guaranteed to happen, right? And so they're saved in the same way we are. They were simply waiting for Christ to accomplish the salvation that they received. Does that make sense? So this is a really good question for the sake of recording. She said, was it, was it the situation where all the Israelites were saved because they were Israelites or was it an individual matter? Okay, so let's tease that out a little bit. What would make you think that the Israelites were saved because they were Israelites? Okay, so they were God's chosen people. Through, they had circumcision. Okay, they were uh, bound by, to loyalty to Yahweh. Okay, so there's a special, unique relationship there. Um, but let's look a little closer. What was, what, if we go back to those two promises, which one of those two promises uh, were made to, to Israel, the numerous offspring? All right, what did God promise to them? The land. The land. Okay. <laughs> 
And then what did God promise concerning Christ and the nations? That he would bless, bless the nations. All right, so that's part of the dichotomy we want to see with these two promises, is that one of them is about eternal life and about salvation. The other one is about life in the land of Canaan. And so there's uh, a lot of, as we'll start to unpack, a lot of what's called typology, a lot of shadows. So Israel was God's chosen people in a certain sense. He was their chosen people in the sense that he treated them different from the way he treated um, other nations, right? He saved them out of Egypt. As we'll see, he brings them into the promised land. He blesses them, takes care of them. He goes out before them in battle. He fights their physical enemies um, as well as, as spiritual enemies to a degree. Um, but the promise concerning the numerous offspring was not that they would be saved necessarily. So that's part of what we saw in Galatians, that dichotomy that Paul brings out between offsprings plural and offspring singular. He's, because the, um, the Judaizers were saying, well, this, this promise was made to us, right? The numerous offspring. And so you've got to become one of us to have salvation. And Paul says, you're confusing those two promises. Those are two different things, right? This promise of salvation concerns only the singular offspring Christ. And so it's anyone who places their faith in him will be saved. So to get back to your question, it, it's an individual matter. That if any of those Israelites were saved, they had to place their faith in this promised coming seed. And it wasn't something that they were guaranteed or promised because they were Abraham's offspring. And so that's part of the problem that Jesus confronts when he comes, right? The Pharisees and everybody else says, why do you say our father is Satan? We have only one father, Abraham. And Jesus says, well, if, father, if Abraham's your father, you should believe me. You should have the faith that Abraham did. And so they, uh, they trusted in their descent from Abraham to save them. And as Jesus and Paul and the apostles unpack, they say, you, you misunderstood that. You had a lot of privilege. You had an amazing, unique privilege amongst all the other nations, but you're not guaranteed salvation just because you're Abraham's offspring. You've got to believe in this promise. So it's, it's definitely a, an individual matter for sure. Any other questions? Yeah. Yes, but even with the first promise, that's part of what we did get into here. Uh, we'll get we'll get into it next week. Um, even with the first promise, there's there's this interesting tension between conditional and unconditional. I'll leave that as a teaser. So you can get you guys can read a little bit of that if you want. I'm sorry we didn't get to it um, today, but it's it's important stuff and it kind of touches on on your, your comment about uh, did, they, did they reach the land? Did they, did they ever possess that land? Uh, so we will look at beginning of next week at the, the fulfillment of the first Abrahamic promise. And then we'll get started on um, the old covenant as well next week. So for homework, um, if you wanna read the first five books of the Old Testament. <laughs> Uh, let me see real quick. Let's let's do read Exodus 19 and 20, uh, Leviticus 26, and Deuteronomy 28. You could throw in Deuteronomy 29 as well. All right, good stuff. Thanks for being here. Thanks for the good questions.
Look forward to uh, next week's start. We got started a little bit late today.